Welcome to Over in Smith, an HP Lovecraft podcast where we read HP Lovecraft story and release an audiobook if it's if it isn't too boring or racist. My name is Art, and with me today is someone who is someone who is gonna be here for the last time, I guess, uh to forever be wandering in the uh I guess the darkness. Uh it's Faith. Hey, the darkness is just code for everyday life in yeah. in modern America. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> One day I will return to my <laughs> my combination submarine and olive garden to die, but that will not be for many aeons. <laughs> many yeah. many aeons. But, but yeah. Uh... This is our last one. Yeah, this is our last one. For now, at least. But yeah, this is the last one. We only have five and a half pages, and then we're done. Yeah, with- we'll have a little retrospective thing at the end, which is going to be, you know, it's, it's probably going to be most of be like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I have some thoughts that I've been ruminating on. Yeah, I'll eventually come up with something. But but yeah, we this is going to be the last one we do, and we're going to move it on to our next project which i don't know if it's going to interest anyone who's listening to this particularly uh <laughs> i feel like it doesn't have a huge overlap but you know it's whatever uh yeah i mean i guess we'll you know put a thing on here being like hey here's our next thing yeah if which if will release to. soon hopefully yeah, it will release. i'm excited about it yes like i have loved this but i'm also really tired of it <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> Recap. Uh apparently this church has uh some kind of monster in it that can only come out when it's dark. Uh and, like very dark. Uh except and like the power went out, but there are a bunch of people with like candles outside, so it couldn't leave. Anyways, uh yeah. The some people some reporters went in, found a skeleton, you know, all the good stuff. But yeah, basically, yeah, a bunch of spooky stuff is happening. There's a thing that seems to only be able to be outside in the dark. Uh, and, you know, the Italians are leaving it at bay by having candles. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I wonder how much it hurt HP to write about um, Italians saving the day. Yeah. Also, uh, some reporters went in there be like wow there's a lot of weird shit here but i guess it's just the italians being weird wow a skeleton yeah every church has a skeleton <laughs> well i think they i think that's they they uh they didn't mention anything about the skeleton oh do they not oh no, no that was um what's his face uh blake mentioned the skeleton oh that's right they specifically didn't mention the skeleton which uh blake yeah. thought was weird because <laughs> like that seems like something they you mentioned talk everything about. else, <laughs> but the skeleton. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, let's uh, let's get to the uh, last bit of the story. From this point on, Blake's diary shows a mounting tide of insidious horror and nervous apprehension. He upbraids himself for not doing something and speculates wildly on the consequences of another electrical breakdown. It had been verified that on three occasions during thunderstorms, he telephoned the electrical light company in a frantic vein and asked that desperate precautions against the lapse of power be taken. 
Now and then, his entries shoo concern over the failure of the reporters to find the metal box and stone and the strangely marred old skeleton. When they explore the shadowy towered room, he assumed that these things had been removed. Whither, and by whom, or what, he could guess. But his worst fears concerned himself, and the kind of unholy rapture he felt to exist between him, between his mind and the lurking horror in the distant steeple, that monstrous thing of night which his rashness had called out of the ultimate black spaces. He seemed to feel a constant tug at his will, and collar and callers of that period remembers how he would sit abstracted at his desk and stare out of the west window at that far-off spire bristling mound beyond the swirling smoke of the city. His entries dwell monotonously on certain terrible dreams and of a strengthening of unholy rapport in his sleep. There is a mention of a night where he awakened to find himself fully dressed outdoors, headed automatically down College Hill towards the west. Again and again he dwells on the fact that that thing in the steeple knows where to find him. The week following July 30th is recalled as the time Blake's partial breakdown. He did not dress and order all of his food by telephone. Oh, just like me. I was going to say, I've done that before, and I wasn't having a breakdown. I just had a day off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why do Visitor- I got to put on pants when nobody's going to see me? Visitors remarked the cords he kept near his bed, and he said that sleepwalking had forced him to bind his ankles each night with knots, which would probably hold or else waken him with labor of untying. In his diary, he told of the hideous experience which had brought the collapse. After retiring on the night of the 30th, he had suddenly found himself groping about in an almost black space. All he could see were short, faint, horizontal streaks of bluish light, but he could smell an overpowering fetter, and hear a curious jumble of soft, furtive noises above him. Whenever he moved, he stumbled over something, and at each noise, there would be some sort of answering sound from above. A vague stirring, mixed with the cautious sliding of wood on wood. Once his groping hands encountered a pillar of stone with a vacant top, later he found himself clutching the rungs of a ladder built into the wall, fumbling his uncertain way up toward some region of intenser stench where a hot searing blast bared down upon him before his eyes a kaleidoscopic range of phantasmal images played all of them dissolving at intervals into the picture of a vast unplumbed abyss of night wherein world suns in the worlds of a even profounder blackness. He thought of the ancient legends of ultimate chaos, at whose centers sprawls the blind idiot god Azeroth, the lord of all things, encircled by his flopping hordes of mindless and amorphous dancers, and lured by the thin, monotonous piping of a demonic flute held in nameless paws. 
Then a sharp report from the outer world broke through his stupor and roused him to unutterable horror of his position. What it was, he never knew. Perhaps it was some belated peal from the fireworks heard all summer on Federal Hill as the dwellers hail from their various patron saints or saints of their native villages in Italy. In any event, he shrieked aloud and dropped frantically from the ladder and fumbled blindly across the obstructed floor of the almost lightless chamber that encompassed him. He knew instantly where he was and plunged recklessly down the spiral staircase, tripping and bruising himself at every turn. There was a nightmare flight through the vast cobweb nave where the ghostly arches reached up to the realms of the leering shadow. A sightless scramble through a littered basement, a climb to regions of air and streetlights outside, a mad race down a spectral hill of gibbering gables, across a grim, silent city of tall black towers and up the steep eastward precipice uh, to his own ancient door. That's a lot of sleepwalking. Damn, yeah. I don't even walk that much when I'm awake. On regaining consciousness in the morning, he found himself lying on his study floor fully dressed. Dirt and cobwebs covered him and every inch of his body seemed sore and bruised. When he faced the mirror, he saw that his hair was badly scorched, while a trace of strange evil odor clinged to his upper, outer clothing. It was then that his nerves broke down. Thereafter, lounging exhaustedly about in a dressing gown, he did little but stare from his west window and shivered at the threat of thunder. It made wild entries in his diary. The great storm broke just before midnight on August 8th. Lightning struck repeatedly in all parts of the city, and two remarkable fireballs were reported. The rain was torrential, while a constant fusillade of lightning brought sleeplessness to thousands. Blake was utterly frantic for his fear of the lighting system, and tried to telephone the company around 1 a.m., though at that time service had been temporarily cut off in interest of safety. He recorded everything in his diary, the large, nervous, and often undecipherable hieroglyphs, telling their own story of growing frenzy and despair, and the entries scrawled blindly in the dark. He had to keep the house dark in order to see out of the window, and it appears that most of his time was spent on his desk, peering anxiously through the rain across the glistening miles of downtown roofs and at the constellations of distant light marking Federal Hill. Now he would would fumblingly make an entry on his diary, so that detached phrases such as, The lights must not go. It knows where I am. I must destroy it. It is calling to me. But perhaps in these no injuries this time were found scattered down two of the pages. The lights went out all over the city. It happened at two twelve AM, according to the powerhouse records, but Blake's diary gives no indication of the time. The entry is merely lights out. God help me. On Federal Hill there are watchers as anxious as he, and rain soaked. Knots of men paraded the square and alleys 
around the evil church with umbrella-shaded candles, electric flashlights, oil lanterns, crucifixes, and obscure charms of many sort common to southern Italy. They blessed each flash of lightning and made cryptical signs of their fear with their right hand. When a turn in the storm caused the flashes to lessen and finally cease altogether, a rising wind blew out most of the candles, so the scene grew threateningly dark. Someone roused Father Molorzo of Spirito Santo Church, and he hastened to the dismal square to pronounce whatever helpful syllables he could. Of the restless and curious sounds in the blackened tower, there could be no doubt. For what happened at 2.38, we have the testimony of the priest, a young, intelligent, and well-educated person, of patrolman William J. Monahan of the Central Station, an officer of the highest relatability, who had paused at the part of his beat to inspect the crowd, and most of the 78 men who had gathered around the church's high bank wall, especially those in the square where the eastern facade was visible. Of course, there was nothing which could be approved outside the order of nature. The possible causes of such an event were many. No one can speak with certainty of the obscure chemical processes arising in a vast, ancient, ill-aired, and long-deserted building of homogeneous contents. Malphitic vapors, spontaneous combustion, pressure of gases born of long decay. Any one of numberless phenomenon could be responsible. And then, of course, the factor of conscious charlatry could be no means excluded. The thing was really quite simple itself and covered less than three minutes of actual time. Father Merluzzo, always a precise man, looked at his watch repeatedly. It started with a definite swelling of the dull fumbling noises inside the black tower. There had been for some time a vague exhalation of strange evil odors from the church, and this had become emphatic and offensive. Then there was a sound of splintering wood. A large, heavy object crashed down in the yard beneath the frowning easterly facade. The tower was invisible now, and the candles would not burn. But the object neared the ground, and people knew that it was smoke-grimed louver board of the tower's east window. Immediately after, an utterly unbearable fetter welled forth from the unseen heights, choking and sickening the trembling watchers and almost prostrating those in the square. At the same time, the air trembled with a vibration as of flapping wings and a sudden east-blowing wind more violent than any previous blast snatched off the hats and wretched the dripping umbrellas of the crowd. Nothing definite could be seen in the candleless night, though some upward-looking spectators thought they were glimpsing a great spreading blur of denser blackness against the inky sky, something like a formless cloud of smoke that shot with meteor-like speed towards the east. That was all. The watchers 
were all half numbed with fright and awe and discomfort and scarcely know what to do or whether to do anything at all. Not knowing what had happened, they did not relax their vigil. In a moment later, they sent up a prayer as a sharp flash of belated lightning, followed by an ear-splitting crash of sound, rent the flooded heavens. Half an hour later, the rain stopped, and fifteen minutes more, the streetlight sprang on again, sending the wary bedraggled watchers relievedly back to their homes. The next day's paper gave the matters minor mention in connections with the general storm reports. It seemed that the great lightning flash deafening explosion which followed the Federal Hill occurrence was even more tremendous further east, where a burst of singular fetter was likewise noticed. The phenomenon was most marked over College Hill, where the crash awakened all the sleeping inhabitants and led to a bewildering sound of speculation. Of those who were already awake, only a few saw the anomalous blaze of light near the top of the hill, or noticed the inexplicable rush of air, which almost stripped the leaves from the trees and blasted the plants in the garden. It was agreed that the lone sudden lightning bolt much have struck somewhere in the neighborhood, though no trace of its striking could afterward be found. A youth in Tau Omega fraternity house thought he saw a grotesque, hideous mass of air just as the preliminary flash bursts, but his observations has not been verified. All of the few observers, however, agree the violent gust from the west and the flooding of intolerable stench which preceded that belated stroke, whilst evidence concerning the momentary burnt odor after the stroke is equally general. These points were discussed very carefully because of their probable connections in the death of Robert Blake. Students of the Psi Delta House, whose upper rear windows looked into Blake's study, noticed the blurred white face at the westward window on the morning of the ninth and wondered what was wrong with the expression. When they saw the same face in the same position that evening, they felt worried and watched for the lights to come up in his office. Later, they rang the bell of the darkened flat and finally had a policeman force the door. The rigid body sat bolt right up at the desk by the window, and when the intruder saw the glassy bulging eyes and the marks, of stark, convulsive fright on the twisted features. They turned away in sickened dismay. Shortly afterwards, the coroner's physician made an examination, and despite the unbroken window, reported electrical shock or nervous tension induced by electrical discharge as cause of death. The hideous expression he ignored altogether, deeming it not a probable result of profound shock as experienced by a person of such abnormal imagination and imbalanced emotion. He deducted these latter qualities from the books, paintings, and manuscripts found in the apartment, from the finely scrawled entries in the diary on the desk. Blake had prolonged his frenzied jottings to the last in the 
broken pencil was found clutched in his spasmodically contracted right hand. The entry after the failure of the lights were highly disjointed and legible only in parts. From them, certain investigators had drawn conclusions differing greatly from the materialistic official verdict, but speculations had little chance for belief among the conservative. The case of these imaginative theorists have not been helped by the actions of superstitious Dr. Dexter, who threw the curious box and angled stone, an object certainly self-luminous, in the deepest channel of the Nargasset Bay. Excessive imagination and neurotic imbalance of Blake's part, aggravated by knowledge of by the evil bygone cult whose startling traces he had uncovered, formed the dominant interpretation given to those finaled frenzy jottings. These are the entries, or all that could be made of them. Light's still out. Must be five minutes now. Everything depends on lightning. Yedith granted keep up. Some influence seems beating through it. Rain and thunder and wind deafen. The thing is taking hold of my mind. Trouble with memory. I see things I never knew before. Other worlds and other galaxies. Dark. The lightning seems dark and the darkness seems light. It cannot be the real hill and churches that I see in the pitch darkness. Must be retinal impressions left by flashes. Heaven grant the Italians are out with their candles if lightning stops. What am I afraid of? Is it not the avatar of Nialothotep, who in antique and shadowy chem even took the form of man? I remember Yagoth and the more distant Shagai, and the ultimate void of the black planets. The long, winging flight through the void cannot cross the universe of light, recreated by the thoughts caught in the shining trapezohedron. Send it through the horrible abysses of radiance. My name is Blake, Robert Harrison Blake of 620 East Knapp Street, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I am on this planet. Azathoth have mercy. The lightning no longer flashes. Horrible. I can see everything with a monstrous sense that is not sight. Light is dark and dark is light. Those people on the hill guard candles and charms their priests. Sense of distance gone. Far is near and near is far. No light. No glass. See that steeple. That tower. Window. Can hear. Roderick Usher. Am mad or going mad. The thing is stirring and fumbling in the tower. I am it and it is I. I want to get out. Must get out and unify the forces. It knows where I am. I am Robert Blake, but I see the tower in the dark. There is a monstrous odor, senses transfigured, boarding at that tower window, cracking and giving way. Ia, Nagai, Yig. I see it coming here. Hellwind, Titan Blur, Black Wings. Yogsathos, save me. The three lobed burning eye. And that's the end of that. Yep. So we're, we're done. We're done. That was the end of The Haunter in the Dark. Yeah. So, um,. Let's jump right into H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Yeah, let's jump in H.P. Lovecraft. I wanted to make sure I got the other reminder that I needed. Up, oh, uh, but yeah. So, um, okay. So last one. Where are we putting this? Because I feel like, like I like it, but 
like I'm not putting it that high up. No. Uh, what, what would you? What would you? What would you? Hmm. I, I kind of want to put it just above the uh, the shadow out of time. Yes. But, yeah, because like it had yeah. the long boring part. Shadow out of time had long boring parts. Yes. And this one like was was able to just kind of go. Yes, I agree. Yeah, it it cut out a lot of the the stuff that really brought down Shadow out of the dark, but then it felt a little too short. Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, but it was it was still really good. It it was an improvement to say the least. But I still like At the Mountains of Madness better. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't want to read out all of these. Uh, there will I be. I mean, if you want to, I'll be uh, here. Yeah. Um. So number one, so we have 68 stories total on this list. And number one is Dagon, our eternal favorite. Everybody loves a long form suicide note about the horrors of the unknown. Uh, number two is Color Out of Space, because that story slaps. I'm not going to lie. Uh, number three is Nyarlathotep. Number four is Call of Cthulhu. Number five is Memory. Number six is The White Ship. Number seven is The Statement of Randolph Carter. Number eight is Ex Oblivion. Number nine is The Silver Key. Number 10 is The Tree. Uh, number 11 is The Cast of Ulthar. Number 12 is From Beyond. Number 13 is The Festival, H.P. Lovecraft's only Christmas story. <laughs> <laughs> It takes place on Christmas. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> you know, the, a- the pedantic people out there be like, but it's not Christmassy. It's it set does- during Christmas and it I wouldn't mean- happen if Christmas wasn't happening. It, yeah, like he specifically goes back to this village to experience the um, Christmas traditions of his ancestors. <laughs> those Those traditions just happen not to be very Christmassy. <laughs> Number 14 is Shadow Over Innsmouth. Number 15 is Pikmin's Model. Number 16 is The Whisper in the Darkness. Number 17 is Picture in the House. Number 18 is The Thing on the Doorstep. Number 19 is The Dunwich Horror. Number 20 is At the Mountains of Madness. Number 21 is The Haunter in the Dark, which we just read. 22 is Shadow Out of Time. So a lot of those classics made anywhere between the top 10 and top 20 in our opinions uh number 20 oh number 22 shadow out of time 23 is hypnos number 24 is the quest of iron on number 25 is the hound number 26 is the outsider our favorite gobbo boy escaping his underground hell gotta love it number 27 the strange high housed in the mist Number 28, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Number 29, The out, the Other Gods. Number 30 is The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, which was, I think, the longest story H.P. Lovecraft wrote and felt so long. Number 31, Herbert West Reanimator. 32 is Celepharis. Number 33 is Cool Air. 34 is The Nameless City, which hasn't, which is named The Nameless City, but that's a whole other thing. Um, Number 35, The Temple. Number 36, The Rats in the Walls, which it has the most number of N-words in any H.G. Lovecraft story. Yeah, 19. 
19. Yeah, out of the, like, what, 23, 24, uh, that one had 19 of them. I think there was 22. No, 22. 22, so 19 of them came from this, and three from other stories. Ugh. And I think two of those came from um, the picture in the house. Yeah. Yep. Ugh. Number 37 is the history of the Necronomicon. Number 38 is the lurking fear, a.k.a. Um, Southern Gothic rich people will perform incest if you leave them alone for long enough. Number 39 is what the moon brings, which we got the classic line, I hate the moon. It scares me. <laughs> Number 40 is the book. Number 41 is Polaris. Number 42, Azatha. 43 is the music of Eric Zahn, a.k.a. a college student bothers an old man. Number 44 is The Descendant. Number 45, Beyond the Wall of Sleep. Number 46, Sweet Ermengarde or The Heart of a Country Girl by Percy Simple. Number 47, In the Vault. Number 48, The Unnameable. Number 49, The Moonbog. 50 is The Doom That Came to Sarnath. Sarnath? Sarnath? Sarnath. Number 51 is The Tomb. Number 52 is The Evil Clergyman. 53 is The Very Old Folk. Number 54 is The Terrible Old Man. 55 is The Alchemist, a.k.a. a man named Charles Wizard uh, murders everybody, but they think he's casting a curse. Um, nope, just murdering people. 56, Through the Gates of the Silver Key. Number 57 is Dreams in the Witch House. 58 is The Beast in the Cave. 59 is The Shunned House. 60 is The Facts Concerning Arthur Germain and His Family, in which um, the narrator dunks on Arthur Germain and his family for a total of 20 pages. 61 is The Reminiscence of Dr. Samuel Johnson. Number 62 is Ibid. 63 is He. 64 is The Transition of Juan Romero. Unfortunately, not a uh, story about uh, a transgender person. You also learned a new slur from that, right, Art? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Number 65 is the horror at Red Hook, which was such a huge disappointment for both of us. Number 66 is Old Bugs, which sucked. 67, The Street, sucked. And 68, Very Dead Last, Under the Pyramids, which also sucked. <laughs> But that's everything. I'm kind of surprised that Dagon stayed at number one. We really love that one, considering oh, it was one of his. One. It was kinda, one of his earliest works too. He kind of just knocked it out of the park with that one. He really did. Really, we also love an extended suicide note. Yeah, we really do. <laughs> Can't help that. Yeah, but yeah, but- I feel like we have pretty good taste in HP. At least, like all the ones at the very bottom, I feel like deserve to be there. Yeah. One hundred percent. Everything number sixty and below deserves to be there. They all suck. Yeah, they do. They all suck. But yeah, uh, what are you? What are your feelings on on H.P. Lovecraft and all the stories we've read? Uh, well, uh, this is one of those times where the phrase uh, "separate the art from the artist" actually applies because he's fucking dead. He's dead. He died horribly. <laughs> And he honestly, <laughs> so nobody gets his money. Yeah, uh, everything is in the public domain. So yeah, yeah. So that so uh, y- you can't separate the art from the artist if they're still alive and making money. 
people. Yeah, keep that in mind. However, H.P. Lovecraft is very dead, and nobody makes money off of his... Uh, well, you can, but... Well, you can, but, like, he's not... His, he's he not doesn't profiting. have, like... He doesn't have, like, an estate that is making money off of this stuff. Also, also, I feel like you could, um... I feel like you can very much, uh... Say that a lot of, uh... A lot of people kind of, uh... Reclaimed a lot of the, uh... More problematic stuff. I was about to say love. that. Um, like the retelling of the horror at Red Hook. Um, what was that one called? Oh, uh, the Ballad of Bo Johnson. No. Well, no. Well, that's one of that's one of them. That's actually adding like a woman into a nature oh, yeah, Lovecraft of, thing. Of, um, yeah, Violet Beauregard. Yeah, the that's about the dream. The dream stuff. quest of Violet uh, Beauregard is really that good. one's really good. Um. Not Beauregard, it's uh, Follett. I I have that. I literally have that. uh, The Ballad of Black Tom is who I'm thinking of. Yeah, is a is a is a reimagining of the horror Red Lick from the perspective of a black man. Um, That's really good. I I keep on meaning to buy that book, but then I was just like, "Ooh, there's another book," and then I buy that one. So yeah, to just put that on my list of things to read. And, but. like, certainly HB has inspired a lot of cosmic horror, um, and, like, he was a good, he wrote a lot of good stuff. And well, I feel like all of his stories where he was overtly racist, they definitely suffered because he was so overtly racist. They just aren't as good. Because he spends all of his time talking about how much immigrants suck, and not enough time talking about scary shit. Like, like the rats in the walls would be like a thousand times better if he just like didn't have a cat. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> yeah. Like uh, it's just distracting. Like okay, it's like let's let's say let's say like let's say we we don't have uh like problems with it for whatever reason. It's just a distracting name. Even even if like you're just like. It'd be it'd be like having in your horror horror story uh someone named like Booble Snoop, you know, or something like that. Yeah. You know? because uh, like, like the Rats we... of the Walls actually had like kind of a cool setup, but like it was distracting. Like yeah. I, like I like not to defend him or anything, but at least in uh the picture in the wall. I mean the picture in the book Oh my god, I already forgot the name of it. Why? The picture oh uh, the picture in the, the house. The picture the picture in the house like it made sense because it's this dude from like revolutionary times still alive like yeah. ugh, this guy just like well, named his cat the obvi- n-word if the rest of the wall the guy named his cat the n-word and it, it's like after world war one and you know? he's the protagonist at that <laughs> yeah <laughs> like picture in the house that dude's definitely the villain of that story like he's about to eat the protagonist <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, like we ranked horror at Red Hook so low because, like, the overt racism was t- it. It lasts for pages upon pages. It's just him talking about how terrible Red Hook is now that there's foreigners living there. That's like eighty percent of the story. It's just not good. <laughs> yeah. And we got really fucking sick. We like skipped parts of the story because we were so tired of reading it. <laughs> like the only part that like had anything remotely good was at the end, but that was after like pages and pages 
of him talking about how immigrants suck. Yeah. Ugh. But when he could have done what other people at the time did and just subtly a hint at it by showing that by just like being like, oh, man, these Italians are sort of really into this thing, aren't they? Wink. Yeah. And yeah, I yeah, like he wrote the, and there are stories that we ranked even higher that had instances like uh, Beyond the Wall Sleep. We talk about the classism in that one all the time. But also it bites that protagonist in the ass in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Like he considers this guy like an imbecile. He's like hill folk who gives a shit about him. Oh, wait, but actually he's the only other person that understands this uh, elevation of um, one's consciousness. He's the only person I know that can get that. Also, also, like, also, I mean, I know probably seem like we're doing this a little bit more in jest but like i do read a lot of queerness into like some of the stories oh as well yeah like um what's the one well the tree is this like obvious oh yeah but, like hypnos, 100%. hypnos uh, that's cool what i was air. thinking of hypnos uh, i literally found this this handsome this tall dark handsome man at a uh train station having a seizure and now we live together <laughs> um and the first time i saw him i was utterly captivated by him the unnameable uh the case well the statement of uh randolph carter uh oh, the quest yeah. of iron on felt like it had a yes. lot of stuff in it yes um so yeah i just i just feel like there's uh you could read a lot of queerness into this also just like looking at his life and how uh, queer men would have uh, kind of done things, especially if they were um, not uh, cognizant of the queerness, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. If they didn't realize that they were queer to or, begin could, with. or couldn't act on it or, you know. Yeah. Had to keep it. Yeah. Lots of queer women. Same way. Yep. But just, uh, but also just in his life, if like, we are now putting the artist back into the art now, but uh, but also it feels a lot like um, crap. Like uh, also, if you just see if you look at his letters and stuff that he wrote as well, you can read some queerness into that as well. Mm-hmm. But but whatever. Like I, the way I view H.P. Lovecraft is like even if you see like the letters he wrote at the end where he was like i was a dumbass i really need to take back a lot of stuff i did and you think oh he just didn't have the time because then he died after that even if like you're not on that boat like he died pretty terribly and kind of deserved it like the damage was done yeah yeah uh, damage was for, he he died of intestinal cancer and he was in extreme pain at the end of his life and he was so afraid of doctors that he didn't go until like it was like three months before he died. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um yeah. It's... He's not like he's not like uh Tolkien who had time to like make up for his mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Cause like even back when even uh because like people like was talking uh would say things to Tolkien being like, hey, uh this uh your 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 dwarves are like really uh semitic coded yeah. and the fact that their downfall of their empire was because of their uh thirst for gold isn't great 
<laughs> like specifically a Nazi sent him a letter saying how great they thought the dwarves were, that they were a um a metaphor for Jewish people and how cool they thought it was that he was like dunking on them. And Tolkien was like, nah, fuck that. Fuck you guys. I'm changing dwarves now. Yeah. <laughs> Just you wait. And then he wrote Gimli in Lord of the Rings, one of the best characters. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um I don't know. He he died a shitty person. Maybe yeah. it would have been better if he lived a little bit longer. But I mean, like none of his money, none of the money from these stories are going to them. They're all um they're all public domain, which is how stories like uh Dream Quest of Volet um Violet Bow or something like that. Yeah, Violet, Violet Bow. Bow can exist. This Ballad of Black Tom can exist. Stories that take these interesting concepts and re-examine them. Well, even in his own time, he wanted yeah. people to play around with it. So yeah, and he was very open about that. I mean, um, he was best friends with the writer of uh, Conan the Barbarian, and they put pieces of each other's work into each other's work. They wrote yeah. stuff together too. I mean, a couple of his stories are response direct responses to people writing stories based off of his own. Yep. So. Yeah, well, he was a good writer. Um, good unfortunately, writer, shitty person. Like, <laughs> good writer, shitty person. Yeah, <laughs> it seems to be that that actually seems to be pretty common. <laughs> and I mean, uh, none of the money will go to him or his estate. If you, yeah, you don't even that, have to buy these stories. You can just look them up online. Yeah. Also, also a lot of like black and queer folk. Uh, well, I should say people of color and queer folk. Um, they they kind of reclaim a lot of this stuff because there is a um feel the feeling of otherness and whatnot is uh is something that you can easily reclaim into something uh more I don't know if uh, positive is the right word but yeah because you know, like context. a lot of his protagonists are like kind of just like weirdos and outcasts yeah. college students studying things that like their parents wouldn't approve of that kind of stuff yeah but yeah um. Yeah, I don't know. This the, was fun. Yeah, this was fun. We're doing another thing, though. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe we'll revisit this to read something else, like maybe um The Great God Pan or um, yeah. The King in Yellow. A couple chapters from that are really good. Yeah, we'll we'll probably revisit at some point. But, but for know. now, <laughs> I feel like we're both really over this. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're done, and we just want to do something that requires less setup and yeah stuff less so. reading yep well uh i mean i don't know how, how do you win this do we want to read our usual thing i guess i don't know yeah the audiobooks are gonna be out well the audiobook's gonna be out after this one okay well um uh, i don't have it anymore that was on my desktop one sec there we go well one for one last time reading the Dread Singles tweet. You are an irreplaceable gash in the fabric of reality. Your keening static howl is like no other. And if it faded from the abyss, the void that would remain would be unfillable. And the mansions of silence would forever fill with our lament. Okay, bye! Bye!
God, I'll be God, I'll be God today. Hold my head down, da da da, then breathe away. Slip my wrist and watch the blood evaporate. Yeah, being this godly can't be good for Anna. Save me, Anna. I'll fake God, I'll fake God, I'll fake God today Hop up on a cloud and watch the world decay I'm not on my shoulders and we'll laugh up with you Thinking this God, it can't be good for Anna, save me